Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. I'm Alan Hunter with our Defined Contribution Institutional Team within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today is Sue Kalasa, Portfolio Manager, and Yanni Venter, Associate Portfolio Manager, both with our Real Estate Americas team within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today's episode is entitled, The Benefits of Private Real Estate in DC Plans, and is for institutional and professional investors. Real estate is an established asset class that provides benefits that are often overlooked when it comes to DC plans. In this episode, we will explore the potential benefits of adding core private real estate to your plan, including enhanced diversification, improved risk return profiles, alongside increased downside protection and stable and attractive income yields. Sue, Yanni, welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. To start us off at a high level, what are some of the benefits of adding private real estate to DC plans? Thanks, Alan. Real estate has had a 45-year history as a key asset class in defined benefit plans. And primarily, defined benefit plans are investing through the private market. Private commercial real estate represents between 85 and 90% of the total stock of real estate in the U.S. And in any given year, depending on differences in cost of capital and that sort of thing, the private market can represent between 80 and 90% of annual transaction activity. And defined contribution plans until recently achieved their real estate allocations primarily through public markets, and that would be primarily through real estate investment trusts. I should stop here and just make a point. When we say DC plans, we're actually talking about something very specific. We're talking about professionally managed solutions, and those would include typically custom target date funds or asset allocation programs. And we're going to say target date a lot when we go through this presentation, just because that's shorter than saying professionally managed asset allocation solutions. So just sort of keep that in mind, and you can substitute in. If you think about why defined benefit plans have embraced real estate for such a long period of time, what are the key rationales? And this would be the case if you looked at any of the large institutional investors in real estate today. What are they really looking for? Well, they're looking for diversification, and that's primarily to equity exposure. They're looking for income, right? And I'll talk a little bit more about all of these. And importantly, they're looking for some level of inflation protection. And those are really the same reasons why plan sponsors choose to include real estate within target date portfolios. And how are those relevant to where we are in the market today? We are in a mature part of the economic cycle. And in general, that's driving clients into safer cash flowing investments that they view as more stable. And they're also looking for fixed income alternatives that provide a stable income return. And real estate is very attractive across all of those buckets. Going back, you mentioned the inflation protection that real estate can offer. How does that compare to other public inflation-sensitive alternatives, things like tips, commodities? Well, Alan, looking broadly, inflation-sensitive asset classes include commodities, tips, direct real estate REITs, and short-term bonds. But none of these asset classes on their own are a silver bullet to protect against inflation. But each one of them have merits, especially private real estate, because of its private market characteristics. If we take commodities, for example, they move lockstep with inflation. And sometimes they're even a driver. But commodities are volatile, so they increase the volatility of the portfolio while providing inflation protection. Then we can look at tips who perform well in a low to moderate inflationary periods. 
but they provide low absolute returns when compared to other asset classes. Real estate has a strong correlation to inflation, and it's also a diversifier, but we have to distinguish between REITs and private real estate. REITs are volatile, so they increase the volatility of the portfolio when added. But on the other hand, private real estate can actually provide inflation protection and reduce the volatility of the portfolio because it recognizes the bricks and mortar changes in the cost of the construction and the labor. It is a real asset. It also means that it can be added in scale, which is a very important point to look at. So from the perspective of a glide path, plan sponsors sometimes take a view that inflation risks could be more relevant to certain portions of their employees, depending on their horizon to retirement. We've also seen white label funds focused on real return strategies successfully use private real estate in their inflation buckets for protection. Now, when it comes to the full spectrum of alternative investments, real estate is, of course, just one option amongst many that have been gaining in popularity in recent years. Why would you select real estate over things like hedge funds or private equity even? If you rewind back to the early 1970s, so none of us here have enough gray hair to remember that time period, but corporate DB plans, when they first expanded beyond public markets, and that really happened in the early 1970s, it really happened with real estate as the very first stop. And there are some key attributes about real estate that make it very attractive and lend itself to inclusion in DC plans more than other types of alternatives. Specifically, I'll focus on a comparison to private equity. If you think about real estate, it has a transparent source of value due to its income-driven returns. It's relatively homogenous, so when two real estate properties trade, you have very good visibility about what other properties in the area might be worth. It is relatively liquid compared to other types of private equity. If you think about the period during the global financial crisis, clearly commercial real estate transaction volumes were way off what they had been from previous years, but the volume did not dry up to zero. There were thousands of institutional quality real estate transactions that happened over that time. And perhaps what's the most important of all is that real estate has a long history of being executed in open-end formats. So open-end formats are vehicles that provide and are accustomed to providing frequent valuation and periodic liquidity to their investors. I think if you look broadly at the private equity space now, just from where I sit, from my bird's eye view, you know, I think there are a lot of innovative ideas that are happening to adapt vehicles to put in place for DC plans, and that might be something that comes on the horizon in the future. I think if you think about the term hedge funds, that's a very generic term, and it could mean a whole basket of things. In general, the investors that like real estate like it because it's relatively transparent. It's easy to understand. It has a transparent source of returns. There's a long return history that's available for real estate and a lot of data to analyze. And also real estate has very efficient, typically pretty efficient vehicles, which is also very attractive in the D.C. space. Eventually, I think that D.C. plans will diversify the diversifier in the same way that D.B. plans have done and as they've expanded across the risk spectrum and to other types of real assets. Great. And as we think about D.C. plans and in particular D.C. participants, downside protection is obviously a significant attribute when we think about asset class exposure. We don't have to go very far back in history to think about why that's so important. How does private real estate act, if at all, to increase downside protection? 
Well, Alan, I think it's important for us to look at what downside protection means. We look at it as the time it takes for a portfolio to recover from a cyclical downturn and the reduction in value loss that adding private core real estate offers. So let's consider an example of a near-dated target date fund during the great financial crisis. A target date fund that had a 5% allocation to private real estate would have recovered two years faster than a target date fund without real estate exposure. That means participants could have retired two years earlier. And that's an important factor to focus on because it's private real estate's strong income and lower volatile return profile that helps dampen the value loss of the overall portfolio. If we look back to the inception of the core benchmark in 1978, and we look at the time periods, how many times private real estate's total return has been negative through 2017, it has only been twice. And if we take that strong return and we combine it with private real estate's low correlation with equities and fixed income, that's where you get the downside protection because returns are not all negative during the same time. For example, if we look at the quarters between 1978 and Q2 2017, that private real estate provided a negative total return at the same time as a 60-40 stock bond portfolio, it is only 1% of all the quarters over that time period. And that's significant considering that the 60-40 stock bond portfolio provided negative returns in 24% of the quarters. So an allocation to private real estate helps a broader portfolio retain value and recover faster during market dislocations. And in our view, portfolios without real estate may lose more value and take longer to recover during periods of dislocation. We mentioned earlier real estate investment trusts or REITs. And we hear from plan sponsors quite frequently about gaining real estate exposure via REITs. Can you talk for a minute about the difference between the two and what attributes you get with each one? And that's a very important question, Alan, because many VC investors already have REIT exposure. And yes, ultimately they have the same underlying drivers. But private real estate and REITs have structural and tactical differences that make them behave differently over a market cycle and create different risk-return profiles. So if we compare the type of exposure and diversification that an investor receives through private real estate versus REITs, it's actually very different. And when we look at core private real estate, our strategies look at large, high-quality assets and prime markets in the four main property sectors, office, retail, industrial, and apartment. In comparison, we can look at the structure of the REIT market that has changed. And currently, about one-third of that market is more focused on non-traditional property sectors, such as self-storage, medical office, student housing. Investors also have less diversification with REITs. As a result of all the recent mergers in the REIT space, we now have a few large companies that make up the majority of each sector. And finally, REITs also use higher leverage, which increases the volatility of the return profile. So private real estate provides investors with the direct access to the diversifying benefits of the underlying private market asset class, which really relates to the bricks and mortar real estate and helps reduce the overall volatility. Now, Sue, you mentioned earlier, most of the DC plans that are leveraging 
direct real estate or private real estate operate within that custom structure. Can you clarify, though, is that the only way that DC plans can access this? You're right, Alan. Custom target date portfolios are the primary users of private real estate so far. And the reason for that is typically these are plan sponsors that have experience with real estate from other areas because they tend to be very large or in the mega-sized space. And also a key rationale for deciding to use custom approaches as opposed to an off-the-shelf solution is typically being able to add extended asset classes, which may include real estate. Now, in addition to seeing real estate used in these types of portfolios, we're also increasingly seeing real estate used in what we call white-label portfolios. So think of these as multi-asset class portfolios that are structured as menu options in defined contribution plans. So they can be either real return funds, they can be real assets funds, they can be portfolios that have income objectives. And real estate, similar to the way that it would play a role throughout a glide path based on where participants are in their lives and their time frame for retiring, similarly, real estate can play different roles in these types of portfolios. As we talked about, it's an income-oriented investment. It provides an income premium to investing in most types of fixed income. It is a real asset, and so it can also provide strong inflation protection and can play a role in a real asset portfolio. Now, we do think that real estate's exposure within these types of white-label portfolios must be limited by the fact that it's inherently a less liquid asset class. You know, real estate should not be 50% of these portfolios, in our view. When we see real estate used by plan sponsors, it really can be in the mid-size space, it can be in the large space, and it can be in the mega plan space. The common thread is that there has to be some type of either custom portfolio structure, and whether that's through a white label option or through a custom asset allocation solution. I want to go back to something you mentioned just a moment ago, that a lot of the plans you see looking at direct real estate and employing direct real estate oftentimes have experience with it. And we see that very frequently on the defined benefits side. We know defined benefit plans have been leveraging the benefits of direct real estate that you've just talked about for many years, for decades even. Why don't we see more managers offering these types of products, though, on the D.C. side? Alan, that is a very interesting question. And I will firstly say that compared to 10 years ago, we have an established growing real estate D.C. market. But the limited number of managers is because managers require a broad range of experience and skill set to truly be able to successfully design implement and manage private real estate for DC plans. Firstly, managers require an understanding and experience in building private real estate portfolios, and they generally require an existing open-end fund. Managers also require experience in managing target date funds and investing real estate for defined contribution plans, because it's important for the manager to understand the impact of participant behavior, asset allocation and glide path design, in addition to target date fund mechanics and operation. And it's these factors that contribute to successful implementation and management of private real estate for DC investors. Now, what we have seen over the past five years is a definite growth in the DC real estate market in terms of the number of managers. And currently we have between 10 and 13 institutionally recognized managers launching or active in the market. 
compared to only one or two institutional managers 10 years ago. Now, these products have been available since the 1980s, but they were challenged by daily valuation and liquidity issues during market dislocations. And there's two changes in the market that Sue has already referenced that has really supported an environment that is now favorable for the inclusion of private real estate in DC plans. And the first is the evolution in the DC market towards the use of target date funds and white label funds. And secondly, there has been an evolution in the structures of the private real estate funds as well, which has made them more viable as implementation options. So with that in mind, liquidity is something that obviously comes up frequently when we're thinking about real estate and private real estate. And it's of particular importance, of course, for DC plans and DC participants. Can you talk a little bit about the liquidity profile that you see of these types of plans? I'll say that first and foremost, when you think about the underlying building blocks of the real estate portfolio that's being offered to a defined contribution plan, it should have a core backbone. And what I mean by that is that the majority of the assets should be invested in income-producing stabilized assets where over the long term between 60 and 80% of the total return would come from income. Now, if you think about core assets, core is the most liquid part of the market. It's how DB plans allocate the majority of their investments. In addition to that, a real estate portfolio for DC plans also typically has a liquidity buffer. And this was a point that Yanni was just making. And that's typically executed through a small allocation to publicly traded equity REITs. And typically, it's somewhere between 15 and 25%. And that's especially important to help with the ongoing course of business needs that target date funds and other asset allocation programs have. So that includes the need to rebalance. It includes participant contributions and withdrawals. So think about, you know, employee A decides that, you know what, I don't want to own this target date fund anymore. I'd rather reallocate somewhere else. That's a participant flow that has to be accommodated. And so real estate portfolios for DC plans typically have some type of a liquidity buffer in order to accommodate those routine types of needs. Now, what's really important about liquidity is what we're talking about is with all of this, when we're talking about target date and we're talking about white label funds, what we're talking about is taking a very small slice of a very big thing and allocating that portion of that small slice, right? So either 75 or 85% of that small slice into core real estate, which is the most liquid type of private market asset. And that's really the fundamental precept for how this whole thing works. We have never taken the view that private real estate should be offered as a standalone participant-directed option in DC plans. And that is because it is inherently something that's less liquid than most participants are accustomed to owning. We've heard quite a bit, I think, about the positive attributes of private real estate within a DC plan. But I think there's clearly something that's holding some plant sponsors back from adopting it. What do you two think about that? What really holds investors back is that they question if the complexity associated with implementing private real estate is worth it if they're only going to make a small allocation. But data shows empirical evidence of the positive benefits of adding private real estate to a DC plan. And we found that investors are much more open to explore private real estate solutions once they have a better understanding of these positive benefits and the solutions that are implementable. One of the other factors is education. It takes a degree of education to fully understand why the current generation 
of funds, private real estate funds, offer viable investment options. And Sue often hits the nail right on the head by saying investors don't wake up one morning and say, I want to include private real estate in my plan. They need to be educated on the opportunity and on the benefits, and that takes time. Another factor is that the fees and expenses in private real estate are somewhat higher than those of the other asset classes held in DC portfolios. Private real estate is a private market asset class, and it is actively managed. But we've seen the most success where the DC plans are using a hybrid of active and passive strategies, but we've also seen the benefits of real estate inclusion recognized in truly passive strategies and passive portfolios. A small allocation to private real estate can still offer significant benefits to a portfolio. And finally, there is the perceived implementation challenges, which could include lineup issues, operational challenges, participant communication and timing. And the most important thing there is that working with an experienced manager is important to successfully execute and implement private real estate in DC portfolios. So Yanni, based on what you just covered, I think it's very clear there are still some hurdles when it comes to educating plan sponsors around private real estate and the use of private real estate in DC plans. But I have to say, just from our conversations with clients, we really have seen a fairly significant uptick in, say, the last five years around this asset class. Can you share with us a little of your views around what might the next five years hold? I would say that we're no longer in the earliest innings. If you go back to your Marketing 101 class, you learned about early adopters. And we're past the early adopter phase. I wouldn't say that we're mainstream. So we're in those relatively early innings. But today, more plant sponsors that are looking to add real estate can do it with a base of other plans to look at for advice and history and experience. And that's really important and I think puts this market at a place where it could be at a tipping point to see some more significant growth. I think if you think broadly, the other really important factor is that in many plans, target date portfolios and other types of asset allocation solutions are becoming the primary source of retirement savings for Americans. And with that, they need to be as good as they can possibly be. And so more plan sponsors are looking at all of the tools and the evolving tools in the toolkit in order to make sure that they are utilizing everything that's available to them to deliver secure retirement solutions and outcomes for their employees. Thanks, Yanni and Sue. Defined benefit plans have been capitalizing on the benefits of private real estate for decades. And your comments, I think, have made it clear that these benefits can and should translate over to DC plans. Sue, Yanni, thank you so much for joining us today on Insights. Great. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on October 24th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. 
This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 20112355E, in Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 551-438-32080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco JP Morgan SA. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated. And in the United States, by JP Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and JP Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and JP Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.